Hello, you rockin' Rockyites. Guess what? Today is this year's autumnal equinox, which means it is officially fall. It's felt like fall for a little bit, but now it is official. And you can feel it. The aspens are turning gold like crazy at higher elevations and even some lower elevations. The air is getting more crisp and cool and is about to take a turn for the chilly. This weekend looks to be rainy and in the 50s in Estes Park and potentially snowy. Did I say snowy? Yes, snowy. And significantly colder above 9,000 feet. So if you are coming to visit us this weekend, plan accordingly. And of course, the clearest auditory sign of fall, and we love our auditory signs here in podcast land, elk bugles. In the spirit of bugle time, today we're bringing you an interview with Hanum Abulez. Hanum is a landscape ecologist, don't worry, we will explain what the heck that means, and spends much of her time studying Rocky's elk and the complex ways they interact with and shape park ecosystems. So when we want to learn about elk, Hanum is the person to talk to. We hope you enjoy this deep dive on elk, on landscape ecology, on history of different areas in the park, especially Moraine Park, and so much more. Let's rock. So we're here in Maureen Park, and we are here with, could you give us your name and your title? My name's Hannah Abelez. Uh-huh. Hannah with an M. Hannah with an M. Not Hannah spelled incorrectly. And my title is landscape ecologist. Landscape so. ecologist. I work on big things. Big things. All right. I like that. <laughs> Lots of things that kind of transcend the boundary of the park, if oh, you will. Oh, nice. That's a good way to think about it. So... Um, I thought what we do today is we'll just kind of walk through different aspects of what you're doing here at your job, and then that'll probably flash us backwards or forwards in time into other stuff that might be going on here in the future, and also how you got into what you do here at the park and what you do for a living and all that kind of stuff. So, landscape ecologist... What are the, what's the broad overview of what that means at Rocky in terms of like your projects, day-to-day work? So the, the idea, most of the time, if you're in a park, mm-hmm. you're going to hear people say, I'm a botanist or I'm a wildlife biologist. Or, and what we've come to realize, which seems very intuitive now, but maybe wasn't so intuitive 50 or 80 years ago, is that everything is a lot more interconnected than one might at first think. So there's a lot of fields that have popped up in ecology over the last 50 years. One of them is landscape ecology, where we're looking at patterns over space and time Mm -hmm. and how do those things connect. Um, A great example of that is kind of our regional elk management initiative. Um, So we're working with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We're working with the Forest Service. We're working with a variety of partners, Mm -hmm. academic, et cetera, to try and get a handle on reestablishing the natural balance on the landscape between elk and all the space that they like yeah. to use. Yeah. Um, and that's been challenging because oh, I we bet. have a pretty disrupted system here. Yeah. Why don't we get into that? Because one, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this interview with you this time of year is so that we could get something out there for folks coming up to the park to look at elk, among other things, and the rut. And so I think it would be 
um, cool to give people some of the background on elk and other wildlife, but we'll start with elk in the park. So you said that very disrupted system in the park. Um, I would guess a lot of our visitors would have no idea of that because they come here and they don't normally see elk and they see elk. And so they think, oh, it's a national park. It's normal. It's natural. Right. Um, Yeah. So could you kind of just go into the history of that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I use this kind of comparison a lot. Just because something looks beautiful does not mean it's healthy. Uh, Great point. I think that, so we're sitting here in Moraine Park and Uh it's absolutely stunning, right? We're looking up the Fern River, Fern Lake drainage. Mm -hmm. um, And if you've never been here before or you don't know what a Western riparian river system should look like, Mm -hmm. you would look at this and say, it's absolutely incredible. And it is, Mm -hmm. but I would say it's also a little ill got a touch of the flu. Uh-huh. And so um, what has happened on this landscape over the last 120 years um, are a lot of things that are incredibly unnatural. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always ask myself a question, and I think folks that are aficionados of nature and like to visit parks and should be thinking about are we managing for a picture or are we managing for a process? Mm. So are we happy if we just have a picture that looks healthy, mm-hmm. even though the underlying foundation of that is falling apart? Or are we really trying to manage for healthy, sustainable processes mm-hmm. that are going to give us these beautiful landscapes for a lot longer time frame than right. just right now for our one visit or our one experience at that place. That's a great way to put it. Um, We want to manage for pictures or process. That's nice. I like that. So I think that's an important thing to think about, you know, because if we go the instant gratification route, well, it looks great. So, hey. Sure. Um, So what we're trying to do is to reestablish the functionality of the ecosystem. Right. And that's hard to do. Um, But there are a lot of things we can do to make it a lot better than Mm -hmm. it is. And so that's really was the impetus for our elk and vegetation management plan. Uh-huh. Um, you know, elk at the turn of the century, were, last century, were completely extirpated from the park. Right. There weren't any left, so they'd market hunted them out of here. Right. Yeah, so I think that that will surprise people. So um, extirpated means locally extinct. Is that right. right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we had a, a healthy functioning elk population. Then people showed up with, firearms with market hunting with all this kind of stuff and it didn't take very long before there were no elk in rocky mountain national park area right right at all and that was by like you said the early 1900s or even late 1800s yeah and i don't remember the exact date of that but um somewhere in there and around the same time humans also got rid of all the things with teeth and claws right right yeah we like to do that as well. so wolves (laughs) Grizzly Um, grizzly bears, bears, which uh, again, our listeners might might not know, were here just like they are in some other parks that you might go to, like Yellowstone or or something like that, where people think of those animals, they were here too. So those had all been gotten rid of, the elk had been gotten rid of, uh, moose. uh, So moose weren't here. Oh, moose weren't here. That's right. We're going to get into that. Moose are moose a whole here. different story. We're going to get into that later because <laughs> I think that is also going to be fascinating to people. And that's something I want to educate and people we can, on. Yeah, we can clarify. Yeah, that will be great. Weren't here. We'll clarify here for me parts. too. Yeah, yeah, what was here and wasn't here. So How yeah, what we was here at that time? Things? We had elk, grizzly bears, 
black bears, wolves, wolves, coyotes, probably bison. Or bison. Most people don't know. That's a big one. <laughs> also, were quite prevalent. Uh huh. Um, so you had you had a complete system, right? right? You had a system that functioned somewhat in balance with itself. Sure. And you have peaks and troughs in that system, but it's what we would call self-regulating, mm-hmm. right? Where the, the human mm-hmm. doesn't need to come in mm-hmm. and manage mm-hmm. actively because mm-hmm. it's managing itself. And right. we're just a part of that system. Right. And there we, had been hunting, right. of course, before that, but it was just on such a different scale uh, in terms of what was being killed and taken and things, right? That it's, it fit with, it was resilient enough to put up with the hunting that was done before Anglo showed up, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, okay. you know, when you start to get into this model of we're going to harvest all the animals in one area and use them to feed humans mm. in places far away, uh-huh. like Denver. Right. And that's that's pretty much what happened. Gotcha. So you, you totally utilized right. all of the hoof stock here, basically, right. to feed folks Amazing. far away, which is an unnatural thing in sure. itself, right? All these things we think of as normal are not normal at right. all. Um, and they have pretty wide-ranging impacts. And oh, that's sure. actually where our, kind of our, um, the North American model of wildlife conservation comes from, mm. is that wildlife is a public trust. Um, folks who, who hunt that visit the park might, are probably quite aware that when you do harvest animals, you know, not in the park, but um, that you're not allowed to sell those animals. And right. that's where this all came from, is gotcha. that when you use wildlife as a commodity, it typically doesn't go very well. So wildlife was being used as a commodity, hunted to local extinction, extirpated. Um, when, so we have elk now. When were elk reintroduced? How did that, how did that work in the park? So they brought elk down from Yellowstone. From Yellowstone, okay. Um, in the two years before the park was created, actually. Okay. So in 13, so 13 and, 14. and 14. Okay. Um, and they reestablished a population mm-hmm. here, um, but didn't reestablish hunt or uh, predator predatory population, right? Exactly. So they just brought the elk back, right? No grizzlies, no wolves. Which has been most of the story of the twentieth century. Exactly. Is we hunted many many things to mm-hmm. local extinction. Yep. In many areas of the country. And then we restocked some of those species and not others. The ones that we liked. The ones we like. The ones we like we hoofed things. Yeah. We don't like things with teeth right. and claws. And when I say we, I mean human beings. Right. Sure. As a culture, not, not yeah. the National Park Service or anything like that. So from those, the 1913-14 reintroduction, 1915 Rocky Mountain National Park is created. What happened? I mean, of course, there's ups and downs. But the general story over that next many <laughs> decades where we didn't have hunting and we didn't have any predators in the park who could actually take down an elk what was the kind of consequence of that play play through that for us so anytime you have an animal that has evolved with predation Mm -hmm. right the reproductive rate of that animal is going to be such that is designed to replace itself with predation right so you remove what we call the top-down control and what you have now is a reproductive rate far exceeding what is needed to maintain that population, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that happens what happens there. Population goes through the roof. Sure. Um, in the early days, elk were culled in uh-huh. Rocky. In the park. Um, because even at that time, people started to note habitat impacts. 
Interesting. And it wasn't done the way we would go about management today, where we have extensive base of science uh-huh. upon which we make decisions. They just said, hey, there's a lot of hooved animals out there. We're seeing things are getting eaten down. We're going to do something about that. We're just going to remove cer- a certain We're gonna amount. We're going to remove some animals. We're going to remove some. Just right. However many we feel like is about right. Maybe let's Right. And that's certainly <laughs> okay. not, not ideal either. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. um, we'd like to make our But that's interesting that even at that time, it's interesting that even at that time that they were seeing like, oh, this is having negative right. impact. We need to control this. And a lot of folks were ranchers and farmers at that time. And mm-hmm. they're used to looking at a site maybe that they had cattle on and they'd be able to evaluate, mm-hmm. is this suitable, sustainable range, et cetera. Yeah. Some of those things certainly have overlap between, you know, understanding habitat health right. um, and range condition mm-hmm. for livestock. Mm-hmm. These are hooved animals. They're ruminants. Mm-hmm. You know, they consume forage. Sure. You need a certain replacement of sure. that feed out there in mm-hmm. order to, to... So when did that, have that culling lunch. stop? So or was it just kind of, of scattershot? Fuzzy. Um, okay. I don't know the full history of exactly how many times they sure. did it or when they stopped doing it. But what I do know is that as we moved into the 1960s, um, and this was a nationwide movement through the National Park Service, right. we entered this period of what we called natural regulation. Mm-hmm. And if you read Park Service policy, you'll see it all throughout there through the 60s, 70s, 80s, even early 90s. Um, and I think that's a noble goal. And so what is natural regulation? How would that, how would you define that? So the idea there is that these populations would self-regulate. So we just leave them alone and it'll all come out in the end. Right. They'll take care of themselves. Humans have mucked with nature so much. Mm -hmm. If we just leave her alone, she's going to bounce right back. Mother Mm -hmm. nature's going to do what Mm -hmm. mother nature does. And it makes sense that that management policy would come in because that's the same time that we're getting things like the Wilderness Act and mm-hmm. those kind of that kind of idea that let's just leave hands it alone, off. hands off, it'll take care of itself. Okay. Right, we've so caused enough damage. Gotcha. And there's a lot of validity to that sure. comment. There's also issues with it mm-hmm. in practice, mm-hmm. and the issues. I always like to tell the story. You know, if I came to your house and I totally wrecked your car sitting out in your driveway. Mm-hmm. I've dismantled it. I've done bizarre things to the engine. I've taken away some tires, et cetera. And then I say, hey, Miles, um, why don't you fix that car? But I also took your toolbox uh, and I took all of the most important tools out of your toolbox and I have thrown them around the town of Estes Park. Good luck. Right. <laughs> You're going to self-regulate now, right? You're going to fix. That car is going to come back to life. Uh huh. <laughs> well, you need the tools, right? You need yeah. the parts. You need the equipment. Um, with Mother Nature, when you take away predation, mm-hmm. which is a critical tool in a system, when you take away habitat availability, right? These animals now are pushed into a much smaller area than they would have had access to, right? Mm-hmm. If we look at the larger landscape of how disturbed the area is around Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm-hmm. You don't have habitat connectivity. It's mm-hmm. harder for animals to move around. Um, you don't have the habitat quality that you had. Mm-hmm. So you don't have your predators. And then another big, big thing is that we don't have beaver on the landscape. Uh-huh. So at one point, there were hundreds and hundreds of beaver here in Moraine Park alone. Just here in Moraine Park? In Moraine Park. Wow. 
That's engineering amazing. the system, mm -hmm. repairing it, mm -hmm. packing every little hole in their dam with mud. Yep. What's the aggregate of all that effort? It's a wetland, you right. know, a complete functioning, regenerating wetland system mm -hmm. on this river. Yeah. And when you take that keystone species away, so you take, yeah. took away all Mother Nature's critical tools and then you said, hey, fix it. And right. what we found was that that didn't work very well. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, the beaver thing. I remember when I, not too long after I came to this park, and I just, I don't know why I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it, but I hadn't. And someone mentioned that, like just a marine park alone, probably hundreds of beaver. And then I thought about, like when I was working up in, in Alaska and Denali and and uh, tons of beaver, uh, I don't know, impacted isn't the right word, but they're there, you know, and they're doing their work. Right. And it's so different looking, just the amount of, like you said, Hopefully our speakers caught that. That was a little bugle in the background. Um, so, so different, you know, the, just from the shape of the stream to, I mean, there I noticed it a lot because there's really no trails. And so you're bushwhacking through everything. Yeah. And, you know, just, yeah, the the vegetation that you're bushwhacking through is so different and difficult to bushwhack through. Yeah. And, and the kind of game and, and wild, wildlife trails and things that you see is is so different. Okay. So that's really interesting. So. We have all these tools removed. Um, we thought, even without these tools, we're just going to let it sit and recover. So what did that do in terms of the elk population in the park and, and the effect that it had on this on the, the landscape? We can talk about in general or Moraine Park in specific, however we want to do it to help sure. kind of paint the picture for people. So, you know, with this concurrent <clears throat> decline in beaver, mm -hmm. um, you also had a dramatic increase in the elk population, mm -hmm. a completely unnatural increase. And so by saying we're going to let nature take its course and we're going to let it be natural. Yeah. And I still hear that a lot today, let it be natural. And I say, well, what is that? In my mind, that's the proper functioning of a system, mm -hmm. not an elk roaming around without a GPS collar on it necessarily. Mm -hmm. So if we think on a macro scale, what is natural? And so we ended up on a very unnatural trajectory. And we ended up with the most concentrated, highest density of elk ever recorded in a free-ranging population Whoa. right here in Moraine Park. Wow. Um, and what so were, it looked like a feedlot population numbers do we know at that at There that were time? at different points. There were over 3,000 elk between the winter range in Rocky Mountain National Park and the town of Estes Park. Wow. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the habitat could not sustain that. Mm. So the combination of not having beaver on the landscape, you know, constantly planting willow, constantly digging side channels mm -hmm. and maintaining dams and ponds. Um, when that landscape dries out, and we did things to help that along. When I say we, I mean humans. Yeah. Right? We ditched and drained Marine Park. It was a, it was a golf course at mm -hmm, one point. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know its history. Mm -hmm. And um, is, is, do we think that that's what contributed to the, that rapid decline in beaver population? Or was it because they were actually being trapped and specifically removed from Marine Park? So they were being trapped okay. and specifically removed both prior to the creation yeah. of the park and after. Okay. And that was prior, you know, the fur trade and then after mm -hmm. just there, a lot of folks thought of them as a nuisance mm -hmm. species. And mm -hmm. they can be, certainly. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, depending. Yeah, exactly. When they're doing their industrious things where we want them to be doing them, they're uh -huh. fabulous. When they're doing them and flooding your roads and your house, yeah, exactly. not so great. <laughs> yeah. So 
Um, and that's our job too as, as wildlife ecologists to understand that balance, sure. right? Humans are in the landscape mm-hmm. um, and we need to work with that. Mm-hmm. But um, so we ended up with these incredible densities of elk. Mm-hmm. And the way that Moraine Park looked at that time, I mean, it's it was transitioning to a dry upland grassland. Mm-hmm. And um, you can make that decision. You can say, hey, we're going to let this go. Mm-hmm. But what are the costs of that? And mm-hmm. the costs of that are dramatically decreased biodiversity. When mm-hmm. I talk about biodiversity, I'm talking about all the other plants, animals, fish, things that contribute not only to the function of the ecosystem, but to your experience when you come here mm-hmm. to Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm-hmm. Um, do you only want to see one one charismatic megafauna? Or would you like to see that charismatic megafauna in its natural environment with all the other plants and animals mm-hmm. that would normally accompany it? Mm-hmm. I hope that I hope the latter potentially is what, yeah, what yeah. we're going for. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that's what what we were seeing out okay. there, and that's so. What be, so between the, the human process. specific, like specific hands-on human impacts, and then the secondary impacts of reduced beaver, and then this exploding elk population, basically, it was getting dried out, and also vegetation was getting eaten at a rate that just couldn't sustain, and so we end up with, like you said, a dry kind of grassland that's just way less biodiverse okay and much more susceptible to weeds to Mm. invasive exotic plants that's a good point wetlands are great at preventing those plants from coming in so so wetlands you know they make up only four percent of rocky mountain national park's Mm -hmm. total area but they provide a disproportionate amount of what we'd call ecosystem services Mm. like drought mitigation water filtration um and they provide a lot of other services, so they're weed mitigation, right? A lot of people, they think about weeds as you go and pull weeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do that. And you can also create environmental conditions that are not conducive to right. weeds, weeds in the first place. Pl- yeah, exactly. they just can't t- take root. Yeah. So we're trying to really manage these systems holistically mm-hmm. and say, where do we get great bang for our buck? Mm-hmm. And we get that through riparian restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's why we've put some might say disproportionate amount of effort, you know, into Moraine Park, mm-hmm. Horseshoe Park, Upper yeah. Beaver Meadows. Okay, so just summarizing really quickly. So we've talked about all these impacts, talked about kind of how things are looking, that we've really dramatically changed uh, Moraine Park over time. And like we were saying earlier, it might make for pretty pictures. You have this nice open field and there's elk out in it, but from a... From a um, a more complete understanding of the history and how it could be, maybe should be. Uh, it's not as pretty and healthy as it might appear. Right. So that's where we were. So when it comes, so now we're talking about, you, you were just talking about the amount of effort that we've put into managing some of these parks. So just kind of walk us through what that effort has been over the last, uh, what, 10, 20 years, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What, are, what are the things that we're doing, um, have done and are doing that um, maybe wouldn't be super obvious to visitors, but that they can learn more about or there actually are signs of if they just start looking mm-hmm. around for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we went through a couple decade research process. A uh-huh. um, couple decades of yeah, research. Nice. To figure out truly what is the carrying capacity of elk. Uh On the winter range, Uh because that's where a lot of the damage was occurring. And when I say winter range, I mean 
Moraine Park, Horseshoe Park, Upper Beaver Meadows, which also happen to be really popular places for visitors, but yep. they were getting hammered. Um, so what is that carrying capacity, you know, and, and how many elk could we really sustain? And if you had an environment where you had natural predators, mm. how many elk would you anticipate to see out there? Mm-hmm. Because that might be your sustainable level. That might be mm-hmm. your carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. And so we've partnered with a variety of universities, partnered very heavily with Colorado State University um, in, and USGS and other organizations to figure out all this stuff mm-hmm. to the best of our ability, using the best science available. Mm-hmm. I think what some folks don't know, to, know or even, even some folks here who work for the park is that um, this is really an incredible example of science-based adaptive management in the National Park Service. And what we have done here and are doing here is a template for a lot of other places. Mm. Um, Not that it's without its flaws, certainly. Everything has its flaws. But um, the process leading up to what we now have and call the elk and vegetation management plan Mm -hmm. um, was pretty extensive. Mm -hmm. And so we determined at that time, um, how many elk do we think we can have on the winter range? Mm -hmm. And we survey that um, using both ground-based and aerial survey methodology. Okay. How do and those then work? We estimate the population so, every winter. Oh, every winter. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do the how is the ground based, and then how do those two work? How does what's the like process that you go through to do that? So initially, what had been happening is multiple times a winter we would conduct just aerial survey. Okay, so you would um, go out in a helicopter. In a or? helicopter. Okay. Yep. And, and count. Would you do like a grid? Type right. System? You're okay. going to fly transects. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to look for groups of animals. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to do is try and count and classify those animals. And when okay. I say classify, I mean cows, calves, bulls, spikes. Okay. Um, when we look at something like the cow-calf ratio, how many cows per calf mm-hmm. or how many calves per cow, mm-hmm. um, that's going to tell us information on the population growth rate, right? Mm-hmm. How quickly is this population doubling, right. tripling, mm-hmm. et cetera? It can tell us what the future might look like. Uh-huh. Or are they declining? Mm-hmm. In which case, we should be concerned because um, we certainly want to maintain a robust and healthy elk population. Um, so that's what we do from the air. And then what we've been able to do, because we got to know our elk so well <laughs> through through these many decades of research and, and research that is ongoing yeah. still. It's interesting when you talk to people who've been observing animal populations for a long time, how intimate they, be, you know, how well they get to know them, like you're right. saying. Yeah. You'll know exactly which group is going to be where and uh-huh. how they might behave versus another group. Yeah. Um, and so because we know that so well, we were able to design a ground-based survey mm-hmm. methodology, which we're now leaning on a lot more heavily than the aerial work. Um, and that's nice because we're, we try to minimize the number of times we put planes in the sky. Sure. You know, that certainly can impact someone's visitor experience if they're happening to be in the park that day. Yeah. Um, it's also a lot safer and a lot cheaper mm. to survey mm-hmm. from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do those ground surveys work? So we have a predetermined number of routes, uh-huh. um, and we survey those every morning mm-hmm. um, for three days, the second week of every month. Okay. October through April. Okay. Um, and we're able to get some, some very robust um pretty solid population estimates for the winter range. And nice. we, we look at both the winter range in the park as well as the town of Estes Park. Mm-hmm. And if folks are interested, um, a lot of that ground survey work um, is volunteer-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can get in touch with our volunteer office. Yeah. Another um, volunteer yeah. thing. Yeah, we had uh, Lindsay on the podcast a few episodes back and talked about, 
We tried to cover all the things volunteers do, and I don't even know if we touched on that one. So yet another thing that volunteers do and that you could do if you wanted to get involved. It's massive. I mean, just the quality data that we're able to produce. And we would never, we would have to fly a lot more if Mm. not for the effort of our volunteers. And it's just been incredible. I think it's a great citizen science-based project that's being used for Again, like some pretty advanced yeah. modeling. So this isn't just go out and look at animals. Yeah. These guys are really um, producing some of the cornerstone data for mm-hmm. our management mm-hmm. objectives. So that's how you're getting data on elk population over time and dynamics of, like you said, different classifications and all that. Mm-hmm. So how does how does that fit in then with the rest of the the plan? So the rest of the plan, anytime you're talking about a hoofed critter, you've got to talk about plants, uh-huh. right? Yep. So again, w- coupled with this pretty extensive elk monitoring mm-hmm. um, and census, we're also monitoring our vegetation. And how is that vegetation coming back? Is it coming back? Mm. Um, and how is it responding to our management actions? Mm. We talked about elk um, we, what we didn't talk about were the habitat fences that you see behind me. Right. Yeah, we're sitting right in front of one. Yeah, you can definitely talk about that if you'd like. Yeah, so good, they're... Good opportunity. They are certainly um, were controversial at one point. Uh-huh. Um, and I can understand why, you know, it's not something you're really excited to come to a national park and see a fence. Sure. Um, but what we can say now with, with confidence is that these things are working. So the idea was that we would protect some of the most vulnerable areas Mm -hmm. um, and eliminate elk browse from those areas entirely because our model showed that if we didn't do that, we would lose our aspen and we would lose our willow and they would not come back. Wow. So aspen are a part of this as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Um, So these fences that people see out and about, we call them exclosures. mm -hmm. And that's because unlike, well, I guess... A lot of fences keep things in and out, but these are meant to keep out elk and other, any other large? Moose. Moose. Yeah, (laughs) elk and moose. To keep them out, but to allow space, um, depending on the fence, you'll see different techniques, but between the size of the fencing or space under the fencing to allow other animals to move in and out. Right. Basically protecting the vegetation inside of the fence from being browsed by elk and moose. Yep. Okay. And so we, every year we collect data on that to Uh make sure that the decisions we've made are actually working, Mm -hmm. which sounds very intuitive, but monitoring programs are very expensive um, and they take a lot of effort to implement. So what you'll see a lot nationwide, globally, people will implement a conservation project, um, but they they don't have the resources to try and monitor that Uh afterwards to see, is it really working Uh what we did? Um, And we're, we're hitting that side of things hard. Um, And what we can say is, yeah, with the Aspen fences, it's working really well. We're Mm -hmm. getting great recruitment, Mm -hmm. um, meaning little young and trees are popping up all over the place in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see that yourself. Oh, yeah. When when you, you know, if you haven't yet, listeners, when you go around the park, look for some of these fences and look inside of some of them. And, I mean, the the difference is, you know, you don't have to be a scientist to see the difference in a lot of the fences at this point. Of course, you're monitoring it, like you said, from the very beginnings of these things all the way up and doing it much more detailed. But it is cool that you can even just see it with your with your naked eye. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you go up above Horseshoe Park Uh and look down at Horseshoe Park, I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, The different 
meadows are in different states of mm. were in different states of decay and uh-huh. decline when we went in and put some of these exclosures in. Um, so in Moraine Park, we'd have we've had a little more struggled response. Mm. Um, and so one of the things you'll see out there if you walk around in Moraine Park, and we've certainly had a response in the fences, um, but you'll see that if you look at the Big Thompson, you know it's extremely incised. Mm-hmm. Um, so cut into one narrow channel. Right, cut down into one narrow whereas, channel. Whereas before with beaver and everything, it would have been just all over yep. Moraine Park, just meandering side streams, right. wet areas, almost standing ponds, all sorts of stuff. Okay, so cut yeah. down into one channel. Yep, and yep. so you've got maybe three, four foot of bank that that river yeah. needs to overflow. I mean, again, a very unnatural situation mm-hmm. that was created, you know, over 100 years yeah. of decay. And I've heard one of the frequently asked questions I get is, when are the fences coming down? And I say, when the habitat can sustain itself. Well, mm-hmm. when's that? You know, um, I think us as humans, we naturally want to operate on these very concrete, very short timelines. Yep. Um, but I say, we didn't create this problem in 10 years or 20 years. We're not going to fix it in 10 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is reset the trajectory, right? Go from a negative to a positive, mm-hmm. And we're absolutely doing that. Um, but one of the things that in a place like Marine Park is challenging is the water. You know, uh, it's it's channeling. It's running right through the system. It's not spreading out across the landscape the way mm-hmm. we'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so excluding browse through fencing is one tool. Uh-huh. Um, but that doesn't necessarily spread water back on the landscape quickly. Mm. And so those are some things we're talking about now. Yeah, that's Really, how do we get beaver back in these sites yeah. to do the engineering that we need them to do? Yeah. Um, hmm. And that's, uh, that's kind TBD? of a hot topic at the moment. Yeah. TBD? Okay. I won't press you on the details, <laughs> but we'll have another podcast in the future when we talk about the Beaver Repatriation Act of something. <laughs> figure out how we can affect that stream channelization. That's a, great, that's a great point. And again, I think something that if you didn't know it, you'd never think about it. You look out and you're just like, oh, yeah, there's this nice river and I see it and everything. But you don't right. realize what it, if you had been here... 150 years ago, how completely different. You'd be able to have lunch in the shade. So try and do that that now in Marine Park. Yeah, exactly. It's great for your fisheries as well. Uh, You know, um, trout like cold, cool streams. mm -hmm. They like stream bank vegetation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've heard great comments from a lot of our fishermen who Mm -hmm. are, I think, some of the first folks to notice the positive impact of our exposures. Interesting, yeah. They were like, wow, the fish are back in there huh. i'm like yeah because the plants yeah. are growing and it's shading the stream right um, oh that's very cool and we saw in 2015 i was actually giving a talk um to some of our new law enforcement folks by uh-huh. the exclosure talking about all this and um up comes a sandhill crane ah uh. and it was the first time we had seen one of those in here in a very very long time so animals will respond mm-hmm. you know and if we help it along a little bit, the hope is that, again, we can get that trajectory going and right. it gains enough momentum where it does start to self-sustain uh-huh. and we can take the fences down. Right. Um, okay. But it's going to take some time. Sure. You know, it's... Sure. It's uh, it's hurting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, like you said, Humans it's a, did a job, you know, it took a long know. time to, to, to get it where it is and it'll take a while for it to recover back and be healthy, right. at least on the human time scale. You know, that's the other thing that's hard exactly. to remember in terms of landscape ecology and just anything to do with the natural world is that 
it makes sense. We're humans. We think on the scale of human lifetimes, but right. human lifetimes are very, very short compared to um, these ecosystems and these these processes at these scales. So, yeah, that makes total sense. That it's kind of like, well, we'll see. When it gets healthy, it gets healthy. So, yeah, that's really that's pretty amazing. I hope that 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 um, helps people understand a little bit more with the fences and what they're seeing and. And, and I also have heard, you know, from people who have been coming to Rocky for decades, you know, they've, they have lived long enough to see some of the changes in yeah. our population and the effects and definitely have questions about that. So, um, what else about the elk and vegetation management plan do you think would be good to cover for listeners to, to know? So we've got, um, a couple projects that are ongoing right now. One of them is long-term chronic wasting disease. Uh, um, yeah, could you tell? Yeah, what monitoring surveillance, chronic wasting disease. looking at the health of our elk population, uh-huh. which is different from the habitat side. Sure. Um, and so we've historically had a fairly high prevalence of chronic wasting disease mm-hmm. in Rocky Mountain National Park. And what is uh, for folks who don't know about chronic wasting disease? What are some of the like what effect does that have on the on the animals? So it's a prion disease that affects the nervous system. Okay, um, and it it leads to death. So in another those affected a prion animals. disease that people have probably heard of would be mad cow. That's another right. type of prion disease. Yep. Or prions Kreutzfeldt Jakob in really humans. Weird. We can't really go into mm-hmm. that, but yeah, very, that's a very, whole other topic. <laughs> very very weird, but it is a prion based. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So it's nothing like anything we had really seen before. Yeah. Um, either in wildlife disease or any other disease mm. um, areas. And it's not a virus, it's not a bacteria, it's a protein. And mm-hmm. so that's bizarre. But what it does is it chews through the brain, essentially. Um, and so if you see an animal with chronic wasting disease or CWD, as you'll hear us talk, call uh-huh. it most often, um, that animal is going to get thin, mm. they might be drooling, their head's going to be low, their cognition is not very good, mm-hmm. they're having nervous system impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those animals aren't going to last too much longer if you yeah. if you see an animal in that condition. And we're, we've been an epicenter for research on this because um, we are the first place that we had this disease occur in a wild population. Really? Uh-huh. And it's, Interesting. And we've had fairly high rates of it compared to the surrounding area. Huh. And there's been a lot of discussion over why that might be. Uh-huh. Um, at this point, we don't have great data to back up yeah. the whys. Yeah. But some of the things that we think about are because we had such a highly concentrated population, mm-hmm. they're unnaturally stacked on top of each other yep. for so long. Mm-hmm. This disease can persist in the environment almost for unlimited time frames. We don't know how long because we haven't been able to look at it for wow. that long, but for decades, certainly. Wow. So if you put a whole bunch of animals in a contaminated space... Mm-hmm what might happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's another typical issue when you have overpopulations of species is you end up having disease issues, mm-hmm. right? Because your, Cause the rates your of transmission are, are just too, much higher. Yeah. Makes sense. And so we don't know that that's why, okay. um, but these are just some things we talk yeah. about. And this is great. I'm glad we're talking about this stuff. Cause this is another thing that I love uh, in general, I mean, just for my own personal edification, but I think it's great for visitors to realize with parks or with any kind of science is like, there are some things that are, we're pretty confident about and we're, you know, and then there's things where we don't know. Yep. And that's why we're doing science because we're trying to figure it out. 
And so I always think it's cool to, to remind people that like, it's not a done deal. We can't tell you all the answers to right. everything in the park. There's plenty of stuff that we're trying to figure out too as, as it goes along. So it's really yeah. interesting. Absolutely. So chronic wasting disease is, is a component of this and is something that is being studied Monitored. Right, and we look at how how might that affect our population mm-hmm. levels over time. Mm-hmm. Is there a time in the future where you mm-hmm. get to a space where you're worried about elk populations? Right. Yeah. Um, that conversation has been had in other places. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, our populations of elk, um, both on the east and the west sides of the park, and I'm talking regionally, uh-huh. right? Because we are one little two hundred twenty-five acre, twenty-five thousand acre nugget, right? right? Um, Which might sound big to people, but big. for an animal like for animals like elk, it's not that big of an amount of space. Yeah, if I can walk across Rocky in two days, right. what does that mean for an elk? Yeah. Um, so I think folks miss that sometimes as well, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. scale in nature is very different than the scale you and I might be used to. Absolutely. Where a 4,000 square foot house sounds enormous. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. So um, that's important because we are looking at elk on a regional Mm-hmm. basis we're looking mm-hmm. at these herds where they right. move and they all only use the park during po- portions of the sure. year so um, on that regional basis those populations great. look good right they're with we think they're within a good range right yeah now. and another common question i get is where'd all the elk go uh-huh you know um i've heard people say that the park service culled thousands of uh-huh. them mm-hmm. uh, that's not true mm-hmm. the big story here is really that um the wintering animals redistributed and they're utilizing the front range a lot more during the winter, Mm -hmm. which is actually a very natural pattern of elk behavior. Right. Why would you stay at 8,000 feet in the winter when Uh you can go down to 4,500 or 5,500 and eat grass all day? So again, suspicions about that. Well, they brought elk into the Estes Valley in 1913 and 1914 Mm -hmm. and those animals had no roadmap in their head. Mm -hmm. So did they just stay up here? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. maybe. So, or maybe they were, you know, confined because of all sorts of things in terms and, of regulations. You know, you had a lot more agricultural production right. on the front range mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've got lawns and gardens. Mm-hmm. And so the elk are living high on the hog mm-hmm. down there in the winter. That's super interesting. Yeah. So that's, they're that's fine. That to me just is moved. A, a great example, <laughs> again, of how things that we take for granted as being natural, it's like, well... Like with elk, that's, I've heard that as, you know, we think of them, and a lot of times now we'll think of them as mountain species, but it's like, no, no, they're not. prairie animals. They're prairie, exactly. Yeah. They're grass eaters. Mm-hmm. Elk are actually primarily grass eaters, even when they have willow mm-hmm. to munch on. They'll only eat 10 to 15% of their diet. Mm-hmm. Um, they want grass. They are grass eaters. So mm-hmm. so it's totally natural mm-hmm. for them. So we didn't call thousands of the elk. Prairie. A lot of the elk right. on their own, they were like, hey, there's nicer weather and more stuff to eat down here in the winter. We're going to come down here. So they Um, redistributed on their own. Makes total sense. And that's another, you know, exactly what caused them to, to figure that out again. You know, um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife did have a couple of high harvest seasons Mm -hmm. in areas around the park Uh in the early mid two thousands. We did put up the habitat fencing. We did do a very, very limited amount of culling mm-hmm. back when there were still a lot of animals wintering in the park. Um, and we have done a lot of chronic wasting disease research. Mm-hmm. Um, folks can speculate all day long. You know, why did that lead sure. cow finally decide to go down Route 34? Right. 
we'll never know. You don't even know why your best friend does stuff that they right. do. You can't read someone else's I can't mind. Explain so. my family. So yeah, <laughs> um, but. At the end of the day, what they've done is what's healthy. Uh So great. Yeah. You know, um, they're moving around more. They're migrating more. They're Mm -hmm. doing what large migratory species should do Mm -hmm. is engage in seasonal migration. Yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah. Um, It's certainly causing on a a human altered landscape, there is no action that is without issue. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there are elk kind of human conflicts occurring in some of our foothill communities that were not occurring that much before. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so the saga continues. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a relationship, you know, we got to both put in our our own effort to make it work. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, while we're in Moraine Park, while we're talking about elk, while it's the rut, while we have the busiest weekends of the entire year Mm -hmm. in large part, because people want to come watch the rut. I thought we could just touch on some of those issues and questions really quickly. Because I feel like um, through no fault of anyone's, they're just not used to being around these animals. There's a lot of, I I just hear people ask questions or just things that people think that um, are really surprising to me. So maybe we can quickly dispel some of those. So I think the the biggest thing that I see, and I'll see if if you concur, I think a lot of people experience um, wildlife, um, animals in zoos and in animal parks. Mm -hmm. And they come here, and I think a lot of the questions that I hear relate to that experience. So it's like, well, why did you let the moose leave this area? Or, or, I mean, the moose, elk, moose. Why am I not seeing these animals? Why are you, this one looks sick. Why aren't you taking care of it? Right. um, I guess the first thing would be, could you just, you know, could we just talk about what it is that the the interactions that we have with elk, like obviously we are doing stuff to monitor them and to try to keep the population Mm -hmm. healthy, but how far does that go in terms of uh, how much are they just doing their thing and living on, living their own life? They are very largely doing their thing. Yeah. Um, So the only time we handle animals is for research purposes Mm -hmm. and we, I always try to figure out what's the least number of animals that I need to handle mm-hmm. in order to get at the study objective, mm-hmm. in order to answer the question. Yeah. Because if you can't get enough to answer the question, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, so, but we do try to take that into consideration mm-hmm. when we're collaring, when mm-hmm. we're handling. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of that down really well. Um, mm-hmm. We've been doing this for a long time. So um, typically our animals are doing fantastic post those those yeah. adventures that we put so them e- so even when we're specifically doing studies and trying to learn stuff we're still trying to interact with and impact the animals as little as possible absolutely and so that should key people in that these animals are not pets or no. trained in in any way right in fact they're quite the opposite and one thing i like to remind people is that when you're here watching them it is awesome when you can watch them. It is beautiful. It can be inspiring. It can be entertaining. But that is not why they're here. They're actually trying to live life outdoors right. 24-7. Yep. No matter how hard the weather is, no matter how good or bad the, the food, the browses in that year, the grazing, no matter what, um, they're just out there trying to live. Mm-hmm. And like the rut is, is a very serious thing for them. Oh, yeah. That, you know, it's not uh, an entertainment spectacle 
Um, yeah. And I think the reason I, that we try to emphasize that to people is not to spoil their front or anything, but to keep the elk healthy and, and safe and let mm-hmm. them do what they're going to do and to keep people healthy and safe because these are like big animals. They're extremely big they're animals. Big. And when you think that, um, you know, a big bull can have 40 puncture wounds in his hide after the rut, I mean, I don't want to be one of those puncture wounds. Yeah. Um, we actually, you know, a lot of times I try to avoid, if there's any reason for handling bulls, we try to avoid doing that during the rut. Uh, it's a stressful time for these guys. They're expending an incredible amount of energy. Yeah. Um, and then they've got to get through the winter. Ah, see, that's the other so thing that I... that's a fun I, deal. <laughs> I remember years ago, someone mentioned that to me. They were like, a lot of times the biggest, strongest, healthiest, most bad-to-the-bone-looking elk that you see out there in the fall are going to have the hardest winter mm-hmm. because they've been fighting... And they put so much energy into growing that rack. They've put so much energy into looking strong and right. splendid. And then right. they're getting puncture wounds. And they're getting yep. maybe broken bone. Yep. And they're just getting worn out. And they're not eating. And and so, yeah, they have to go into a winter of... If anyone's been to, like... Of course, we're, we're saying they're moving down a lot, some of them in the winter. But if anyone's been up here in the winter, if you haven't, come up, hang out in Moraine Park when it's, oh, yeah. you know howling wind mm-hmm. and i mean just getting out of your car for two minutes to take a picture you're like oh man yeah and they're out in that all day so we actually Good thing to a, remember a group that um winters up on the tundra oh, what i didn't so, realize that that's yeah, crazy about uh, 40 animals or so what? so again as wow. much as you can try Amazing. to explain behavior and yeah. what they're gonna do and there's always anomalies there's yeah. always somebody who's saying i'm doing yeah. my thing um, they found some niche yeah. that's working for them, you yeah. know, for that group of animals. But um, yeah, I think people really need to be respectful of these animals, respect their space. Yeah. Um, we don't manage them in the sense of zoo animals or yep. perhaps, you know, your livestock that you have right. at home. They don't go in a corral. Right. They don't get fed. We don't they supplementally don't. feed them. Right. Um, if they get sick. They are sick. They're sick. Yep. If they get injured and they're going to die, they're going to die. They are wild animals. Yes. Um, yes. And so a lot of folks, I hear comments kind of like, we want to have it both ways, you know, and we need to keep our wildlife wild. Um, if we do have a really, really um, rough looking chronic wasting disease mm. animal, sometimes we may make the decision to euthanize that animal. Just to put it out They of might misery. only have a couple of days to live. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's rare. Um, I've had incidents with vehicle collisions where people, oh, we should euthanize it, you know, You'll be amazed at how tough these guys are. Mm-hmm. Um, we we want to give them every chance to live their life the way they would have. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. typically, unless they're having a really hard time eating, getting up, mm-hmm. performing basic life functions, sure. we're going to let that animal have a shot yeah. at doing mm-hmm. what he or she was going to be yeah. doing. Um, so what are the other things? So, so I mean, the, the biggest thing that we tell people is to keep a safe distance it's hard to give an exact number. We actually do have a legal minimum number now um, in the compendium just this year, which is 25 yards. Um, but, of course, that, like we were talking about earlier, they're wild animals. Um, that varies. So in terms of people keeping a safe distance, how would you like them to, to think about it? And a hoofed critter and. I'll talk about moose too and I'll just lump them in here because yeah. they, they're going to be rutting after the elk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're even bigger. And they're even bigger <laughs> and typically even less tolerant. Yeah. Um, they can cover 25 yards awful quick. Um, yeah. I have 
a lot of experience um, conducting ground capture of these animals. Yeah. And um, that's not a lot of space. No. Um, it's not a lot of space at all. So I think, to keeping note of the animal's behavior and their demeanor, if they start to pay attention to you, you're too close. Yep. And that could be 40 yards, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially with moose. Mm-hmm. Um, but with these bulls that are in the rut, mm-hmm. whether they're elk or moose, um, and they vary behavior just like we do. Absolutely. Yep. So you can have one person with an incredible amount of tolerance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're from New York City and they're used to being on the subway with <laughs> 8,000 of their closest friends. Yep. Um, or, you know, you could have someone that has, has pretty wide buffer around them sure. where they feel comfortable. Yep. And these animals are the same way. Yep. They're all individuals. Yep. They're individuals. They're going to make different decisions. Mm-hmm. And folks are used to their dog, you know, right. very expressive, right? Mm-hmm. Hoofed animals are not so expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're used to being around horses, maybe you might be right. able to pick up on some of these things. They do similar things. They might just lay back an ear. Mm-hmm. They might just kind of clench up their Very jaw subtle. a little bit. And they might stop chewing. Mm-hmm. If those things are going on, they're noticing you. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not for a good reason. Mm-hmm. So it's wise. Just be cautious. Have yep. a good time. Don't yep. get hurt. Yep. Um, Unless people think that people don't get hurt, they do. We had people get hurt in the town of Estes Park yesterday. yesterday. Two different yep. people. Two different so, people were hurt. Um, I don't know all the details, but yeah. it didn't sound good. Yeah, I think that they were treated and released, but I think they they weren't feeling too too great. So um, people can get hurt. People do get hurt. We don't want you to get hurt, and we don't want to to negatively affect and mess up this incredibly important time. Like this is the time when breeding happens for the year. Right. So extremely crucial, and it's right before heading into winter. So. I th- that that to me, yeah, that's the greatest thing for people to remember is that we we have these numbers that we set and try to use just literally as like a bare minimum. But really, it's exactly what you said. If if you're affecting the animal's behavior, you're too close. Yep. So just back off. And we know, and I'm I'm a photographer, so I get it. We know everyone wants great wildlife shots. Um, if you want great wildlife shots, you need to get a camera with a nice big zoom lens. It's, exactly. It's the only way to do it. Even the even the professional shots that you're seeing, people aren't getting super close. They're having huge lenses. So that's, unfortunately, that's the way it is. You're not going to get great close-ups of wildlife uh, with a the, with the, uh, smartphone camera. So if you really want those close-ups, it just takes some uh, investment in technique. And, uh, and we actually have a page now on our website, so... If you go to our website and you look under plan your visit under safety, there's a page now about wildlife safety. And then that links to a page that gives you tips for photography, for photography, wildlife right. photography, including how you can get shots that aren't close ups. that are from a safe distance, but that still look good. So yeah, go on there for that. Um, anything else we want to cover there? I mean, we have other specific rules. We have meadow closures every right. evening. Um, and that is, I assume, to give them some space to live life. And, yep. yep. They're very active, you know, what we call crepuscular, right? Uh-huh. At dawn and dusk. Uh-huh. Um, and then often overnight during the rut. Mm-hmm. Um, so you certainly don't want to be walking through Moraine Park in the dark yeah. and come across a big yep. six by seven bull who's yes. pretty supercharged. Yeah. Um, and those closures are in the newspaper and they're on the website and we have signs out too. So. Yep. If you ever cure, if you're ever wondering or trying to remember, there's things around to remind you. 
Right. Yeah. Right. And there's plenty of amazing viewing areas, oh, right, where you absolutely. can watch these animals at a safe distance absolutely. and have your experience and let them do mm-hmm. what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing folks don't realize, you know, is sometimes animals have to be euthanized because um, folks got too close and provoked an attack. And now that needs to be dealt with accordingly. Right. Um so let's keep them safe, keep ourselves safe, and uh, we can all enjoy the rut and have a great time. Nice. All right. So hopefully that will, um, I hope that that gives all our listeners a way better understanding of, of, of elk in the park, a little bit of the history of it and how we're actively monitoring and, and trying to just create a, a healthier um, ecosystem overall. And then also how they can enjoy the rut more uh, safely. So, um, earlier I mistakenly mentioned, um, moose being around a hundred years ago and they were not, as you informed me, which you'd informed me before, but you know, it takes a few times. (laughs) So, um, I wanted to talk about that really quickly. So a hundred years ago, no moose in this area that we know of. Is that right? So a hundred years ago, maybe the casual passerby moose. Um, But no established population? Yeah. So folks will you know, argue back and forth the point of what does were they here mean, uh, right? So yep. what I would offer Over is what that, time scale maybe? Um, we didn't have, as far as every piece of information we've been able to review, mm-hmm. um, everything from historical accounts to the fossil record, uh-huh. we did not have established breeding populations of moose. Mm-hmm. And as anyone knows today, that's very, very different. We have very established populations of moose um most of the female moose i've seen have calves if not twin calves yeah um so definitely established definitely breeding yeah um and they're a beautiful fantastic charismatic animal um but they were introduced um to the west side of the park um west of the park in the north park area by colorado parks and wildlife in the late 70s okay i didn't realize that Mm -hmm. so they were introduced from from wyoming and utah okay and so then, then there were several other introductions at different points in the state. And, mm-hmm. But what, what we've got now is, um, you know, a very robust, rapidly expanding moose population. Yeah. Um, and again, kind of regardless of if they were here or not, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. folks can get really hung up on that conversation. Sure. Um, we still don't have predators on the landscape. Yep. And we have a very damaged wetland system. Mm-hmm. And that's what um, moose love. And moose are wetland, what we'd call wetland obligates yeah. for much of the year, mm-hmm. where they exclusively utilize, they are browsers, right? Yes. Not grazers. Yes. And if you look at their face, you can kind of see some of the mm-hmm. unique adaptations there. Um, so they're experts at stripping aspen and willow. Mm-hmm. And those are, of course, the two species we've focused on for restoration yep. um, that are kind of cornerstone species of, of wetland systems. Yeah. Um, riparian system. So um, we don't know much right now, mm-hmm. but in order to know more, we're kicking off a five-year research study. Cool. That's going to look at yeah. Um, not only estimating the population. Um, it's going to look at what what are the home range of these animals. Uh-huh. What does their seasonal movements look like? Um, what's their baseline health condition? Mm-hmm. So we'll be testing for chronic wasting disease, which is very rare in moose, but can occur. Mm. Um, we're looking at body condition score. We're doing some blood work. Um, so we're, we're starting a pretty big study on um, 
what is the status of our moose in the park? And that just started this fall? Is that in right? August. In August. Yep. Nice. So we have a few animals collared on the west side of the park mm-hmm. and an animal collared on the east side of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get kind of a lot of that seasonal movement information. Very cool. So in so technology. in five years, we're going to know a heck of a lot more about moose and yeah. Rocky than we do now. Yeah. And um, we actually talked before the podcast. We're thinking about ideas for future seasons of the podcast. And so we think uh, one really cool thing might be to do a um, kind of a mini series inside of the series about the moose study um, next year where we can really get into detail and even go out in the field and, and, uh, and get a lot more info for that. So if people will bear with us, we're going to not go into super detail on that now. But we just wanted to let you know that, obviously, um, whether or not they were here in the past, they're certainly here now. Right, And exactly. we have tons of questions about the moose population Rocky that are unanswered. Mm-hmm. And Hannah is leading up the effort to try to answer those questions. And it's going to be super interesting. So we will check back in on that as we go along. Um, another thing that I think we'll wait on for that is some of your background, because it is very interesting, I think, in terms of other jobs that you've had and how you got into, into, um, this field. Um, so I think that we'll be able to cover that then, if you're okay with that. Sure. Sounds Um, like a plan. So we'll keep this one elk specific for the most part, but I want to wrap up with, uh... Bigger picture stuff. That's what we usually like to do. We go big picture at the end for at least a couple <laughs> questions. So this is probably a tough one to answer maybe, but as a landscape ecologist, what what is maybe the one or two biggest things that you wish you could go around and tell visitors all the time, but you're busy doing research and work and in the office and can't tell them? Like what's the kind of big one or more big ideas from your field that you think would really inform people's visit when they're here in the park and they're seeing all the amazing things that they're seeing? I think we have to constantly remind ourselves how interconnected everything is Mm. because we don't operate that way. Mm -hmm. Humans do not operate that way. We have a really hard time thinking on a 50-year, 100-year, 200-year time frame. We have a really hard time thinking on a multi-state, spatial scale a continental spatial scale um but that's how nature works Mm -hmm. so we can either start to try and think that way Mm -hmm. a little bit more Mm -hmm. um because these efforts you know i can spend 14 hours a day working on this stuff but i can't do this by myself sure um maintaining healthy landscapes restoring unhealthy ecosystems Maintaining healthy wildlife populations, which mm-hmm. are really a very rich heritage in this country, um, that requires all of us, and it requires cultural shifts, and it requires people working together across state boundaries, across yeah. land ownership lines. Um, and if we're willing to do that, we can do some incredible things. Mm. And if we're not willing to do that, we risk losing a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. Uh... That's a great point, and I feel like that that's something that has started to to emerge in terms of communication with the public to national parks. But I think it's great to emphasize more and more, which is if you if you come to Rocky, if you love Rocky, you know it's not a contained thing. 
Like right. Everything that happens around it matters. If you live near here, uh, it matters. If we want to keep it um, as healthy and beautiful as it can be, we have to think way outside the boundaries and we have to partner um, with everyone down to the individual level. So awesome point. Yeah. Um, and then the last big picture thing that we like to wrap up with is how long have you been at Rocky Mountain National Park now? Um, almost two and a half years now. Okay. So similar to me. So uh, it's interesting. We've had some people who've been here for 30 years. We've asked this question and some people have been here for a year and asked this question. But so far your time at Rocky, um, what has your time at Rocky or what does Rocky mean to you? What has it been like in terms of it can be your professional life, personal life, both, whatever. What is what is Rocky meant to you so far in your two and a half years? So Rocky was actually the first big Western park that I'd ever seen. Oh, when was that? Um, and that was in 2005. Okay. And I was driving out to go work on a ranch north of Steamboat Springs uh-huh. from the East Coast. So I'd traveled all over the world, but I'd never come to the Western United States. Uh-huh. Um, and it just blew my mind, right? Sure, I always say I was, I was a young kid with an old truck and a new pair of boots, you know? And um, it, it really stuck in my mind. And I never envisioned that this many years later I would be kind of heading up, you know, some of our pretty keystone um, adaptive management projects. Yeah. And I think um, that's what really, that's really what drew me back Mm -hmm. here um, out of a myriad of different opportunities is that, um, again, something I think even even folks who work here don't realize, some of the stuff that we're working on in terms of ecosystems management um, and long-term recovery um, is really a template for a lot of other places. Um, And we have a really strong science base for what we do, which, as we talked about earlier, that wasn't always the case, right? Folks would say, oh, yeah. there's too many elk. We'll shoot some elk. You know, we don't we do not do that sort of thing. And um, there are a lot of places around the country and around the world that are trying to engage in this adaptive management model where we feed science into our decision-making process and we're actually making decisions based on, on data as mm-hmm. opposed to what we think might be happening. Um, and so for me, that was really a big draw to come back here. Um, so both the sentimental piece and yeah. the great professional opportunity and I work with uh, just some incredible people who are highly motivated both here and and at our partnership organization so that's really energizing that's awesome well that's pretty amazing that it was able to come full circle like that at this that you're you know the first place that kind of blew your mind introduced to the west is where you find yourself doing your professional work. That's pretty awesome. Right. So we will check back in with you soon. Uh, Listeners will get to learn a lot more about these innovative studies that we're doing and um, about various staff that you work with and about the whole program in the future. So look forward to that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Miles. All right. next episode will be released on Friday, October 6th. For show notes, transcriptions, and to learn more about our show, visit our homepage at go.nps.gov forward slash rmnpod. That's go.nps.gov forward slash rmnpod. 
The Rocky Mountain National Podcast is a product of Rocky Mountain National Park, one of 417 units of the National Park Service that preserve America's heritage for all, forever. Stay classy, Rocky Rangers.